Welcome to Getting Credit, a podcast focusing on financial markets, corporate credit, and timely insights from Pacific Funds. Here's your host, Dominic Nolan, CEO of Pacific Asset Management, the sub-advisor for the Pacific Funds Fixed Income Strategies. Hello, and thank you for tuning into number 23. In the next 10 minutes, I'm going to go over market action in July, expectations for Fed tapering, the recent spending packages in Congress, and a little about the effect of the Delta variant on the economy. And as always, finish these updates with a personal thought. As it relates to market action in July, I'll keep it pretty quick. S&P 500 was up over 2%, and now for the year is up almost 18%, again, through the end of July. Market leadership for the fourth month in a row was tech-oriented names. Russell 1000 growth was up over 3%. Russell 2 was down over 3%. For the year, the Russell 1000 growth is up over 16% and Russell 2000 value up over 22%. International markets continue lagging the US markets. That's not a surprise. When we shift over to fixed income with rates pairing back a little bit, the broad-based bond index or the aggregate index was up a little over 1% and for the year is down 50 basis points. When you add together your classic balanced portfolio, good mark, If you take the S&P and the aggregate index, portfolio is up around 9%. When we go over to credit, high yield led the way up 38 basis points. We really are in a coupon clipping oriented environment. For the year, high yield bonds are up 4% through July and floating rate loans are up about 3.5% through the end of July. Now let's shift over to the Federal Reserve. So I want to lay out a base case, which is based on certain comments from Fed Chair Powell and Vice Chair Clarida. From a rate hike standpoint, expectations are the first hike is early to mid-2023. So a little more than a year and a half from where we are. The conditions for a rate hike, I think, are three, three conditions. One, 2% inflation. Second, max employment. And three, they have finished tapering. So we talk, we work backwards and we really talk about tapering. Let's assume tapering takes about nine months with a one to three month lead time. So all in about a minimum of a year to get through this. That leads to announcements in, possible announcements in September for tapering to begin in 2022. But I think given the surge in cases in the Delta variant, we probably will not get a Fed announcement for tapering in September, ends up being in November, December timeframe to begin tapering in Q1 of next year. And again, assuming next year goes well, and we hit the inflation and employment employment targets, I should say, you could see a rate hike in 23. Again, that's that's a long, long ways from where we sit today. Now, take a pivot and talk a little bit about the spending packages that or approved by the Senate. First, the infrastructure bill, about a trillion dollars, truly a bipartisan bill. The Senate passed it 69 to 30 vote. So broad-based support on that. You also had a three and a half trillion dollar budget bill, the reconciliation bill. That's a much harder bill to get through. So right now that really onus is on the House. And Speaker Pelosi will have to make a decision on whether or not to bring the infrastructure bill in for approval before or after 
the budget reconciliation bill. Personally, I think with Congress on a recess in August, local feedback or the polls will give you know, our, our Congress a sense of what really matters to America right now. My hunch is if it's COVID and less economic related or less inflation related, then most likely you can expect that these bills have an easier time passing. If, however, the feedback is inflation is an issue over COVID, then this spending, these spending packages will be more in the forefront and could be much more difficult to pass. So that may very well determine whether or not infrastructure goes first or after budget reconciliation. Within that is also a debt ceiling element that was not addressed in the budget bill. So expect September to be fraught with a few things, but a lot of different leverage points for Congress on these three elements, infrastructure, budget reconciliation, and debt ceiling. The wild card in this is with the surge and uh, the, uh, the Delta variant, you could get more emergency measures extended, such as the moratorium, which we've seen on evictions, as well as student loan forbearance. I want to move now to the Delta variant and its impact on the economy. But before we get into the impact on the economy, just want to give you some statistics on where we sit as a country from a vaccination standpoint. As of now, about 70% of adults in the United States are vaccinated. Total population, about 58%. When we look through the subcategories, when we look through the subcategories, millennials, about 57% of millennials have been vaccinated. And then folks 18 to 24, about 53%. So uh, that surprised me. I thought there'd be a greater percent of millennials that have been vaccinated. I would say that first dose moved from 250,000 a day recently and is trending towards 500,000 a day. So that, that's, I think, good news for the economy and that you have more people getting vaccinated. The goal is, I think a fair goal is 75% by Labor Day. There are four things coming that will, my opinion, I think, help with the vaccination efforts. Local government mandates is one, employer mandates. Expect full vaccine approval after, shortly after Labor Day for the Pfizer BioNTech vac, uh, vaccine and Moderna after that. And then the trials on the five to 11 year olds is expected to end in September. Would expect emergency use authorization to be approved in Q4. So again, assuming the data on the vaccines is quite good. So that will, in theory, flatten the curve, which again will lead to more economic reopening and thus increased growth. But where we sit today, what is Delta doing? And you know, we have gone over some spending data before. I'll just share with you briefly. Card spending using the Bank of America daily credit card data, card spending was from a seasonally adjusted basis down in July versus June, which when you think about the opening of the economy, that tells you there was a pause. When we look you know, two years, it's still quite good. You know, however, June was up 14% over two years. July was up six, so there was a drop-off there. When we look through further to airfare and lodging, so month over month now, leading up to July, airline spend was up 24%, 14%, 12%. So double-digit growth month over month, and then July came up 2%. So drop-off. When you look at lodging, 10%, 5%, 8%. July came up two. So there certainly is has been a pause in consumer behavior 
how much of that is from stimulus checks, you know, kind of waning or the effect of stimulus waning, you know, back to school coming in. Certainly that plays, in my opinion, would play a little bit of a role in there. But I think the Delta variant is, is certainly giving folks some pause. However, when we look over a two-year basis, lodging is still up 10%, restaurants up 17 furniture up 30 So again, the economy is still quite strong relative to two years ago. But for the time being, July showed a little bit of a pause in that acceleration. When I think about fixed income, the corporate story is still very strong. And I'll give you an anecdote from a default standpoint. When you look over the past 10 years, the number of names that have defaulted in, in loan land or leveraged loan land, on average, about 20 per year. Last year, we had 65 during a pandemic. But the previous three years were 21, 15, 20. So far this year, we have had a total of four names default, which tells you in general, corporations are doing quite strong. Obviously, financing rates are low. The markets are wide open for them to take out debt, and the economy is robust. So that's the quick quick and dirty, shall we say, of July markets. So I will close now with a personal thought. For this month, it's be a peacekeeper by not firing bullets. And what I mean by that is it, it has been really disheartening to see the vaccine narrative on both sides. And I think what people are missing is, well, they're, they may be firing bullets at each other. The people that are really caught in the crossfire are the doctors and the nurses and our first responders. They're the ones suffering from this. And it's disheartening to see. And I think what's going to happen this month is a very similar crossfire that's going to start to hit teachers. The country's going back to school, and this is a very difficult situation. There's really no inclination to go remote. I understand that. You have a variant that's spiking. That's a fact. The mandates around masks and protocols are, are very wide and they have polar views, polar opposite views. But you're asking someone to go into a classroom with 20 to 30 humans that are not vaccinated because they don't have access to it and spend hours trying to keep them focused and teach them something for six hours a day, four to five days a week. That's not going to go smoothly. And if anything, people like to fire bullets when things don't go smoothly, but you're going to hit people that are trying to do a service and they're asked to be in a very difficult situation. So all those bullets, they're hitting nurses, doctors, first responders, and teachers. So please think twice before you fire these and hopefully you never fire them and just be a peacekeeper, be a safe haven. That's my personal thought. Thank you and stay tuned. As of June 30th, 2021, Pacific Funds Fixed Income Funds did not hold any Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna securities. One basis point equals 0.01%. The Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is composed of investment-grade U.S. government bonds, investment-grade corporate bonds, mortgage pass-through securities, and asset-backed securities, and is commonly used to track the performance of U.S. investment-grade bonds. A broad-based index is designed to reflect the movement of a group of stocks or an entire market. The S&P 500 index 
is a market capitalization weighted index of 500 widely held stocks often used as a proxy for the U.S. stock market. The Russell 1000 Growth Index measures the performance of the large cap growth segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with higher price-to-value ratios and higher forecasted growth values. The Russell 2000 Value Index measures the performance of the large cap value segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with lower price-to-book ratios and lower expected growth values. The Russell 2000 Index measures the performance of the 2,000 smaller companies that are included in the Russell 3000 Index, which itself is made up of nearly all U.S. stocks. The Russell 2000 is widely regarded as a bellwether of the U.S. economy because of its focus on smaller companies that focus on the U.S. market. All investing involves risk, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. The views in this commentary are as of August 13, 2021, and are presented for informational purposes only. These views should not be construed as investment advice and endorsement of any security, mutual fund, sector, or index, or to predict performance of any investment. The opinions expressed herein are subject to change without notice as market and other conditions warrant. Any performance data quoted represents past performance, which does not guarantee future results. Any forward-looking statements are not guaranteed. All material is compiled from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Sector names in this commentary are provided by the funds, portfolio managers, and could be different if provided by a third party. Pacific funds are distributed by Pacific Select Distributors, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC, a subsidiary of Pacific Life Insurance Company, Newport Beach, California, and are available through licensed third parties. Pacific Funds refers to Pacific Funds Series Trust.